Well, we're going to talk tonight about some things that will help us to be prepared for uh, when the day comes for us. Because a lot of what we do in these Friday classes has a dual purpose. It has part of the purpose is to help us to live right now. And that's what the Beatitudes are so much about. They're about the good life, the life that we were meant to live, life to the full. So it's about how we live now, how that makes a difference in the world, how it blesses the world, how it shows the world who Jesus is through the way that we live, in, in harmony, in obedience, but also in harmony with his teachings and the way that he was as a, as a person, if you like. But it's also, the other part of it is preparing us for the next chapter in life that comes after this life, which is the next life, which is in some ways the ultimate life because that's where we're going forever. And so there's a dual purpose to all of what we're teaching. And sometimes it's helpful on a night like tonight to think about what from tonight is useful for me now to live and what have I heard tonight that's useful to prepare me for the next life. Maybe you might want to keep those, those two thoughts in mind as we go through tonight's material. We're looking at chapter 5, verses 21 to 48 tonight, and I've entitled it, You Have Heard That It Was Said, But I Tell You. And that's not me, no, I tell you. Jesus said. You've, he's, and this, this phrase, or similar phrases, come up again and again and again through the Sermon on the Mount, as well as other parts of the Gospel, where he says, you've heard it said about Moses or the, the traditions, and you've heard it said, but I tell you, no rabbi ever said this. The very fact he would dare to say, but I tell you, reveals in that one phrase what he thought of himself. Mm. The idea that Jesus didn't think he was divine is frankly ridiculous when you start to think about how a Jewish person would react to somebody saying this. Because he's putting himself on a par with the word of God, with the revealed Old Testament, the Old Testament at that point, the, the Old Covenant, the word of God. He's saying, you've heard that, but I tell you, I'm on a level with this. And who can be on a level with this other than God? Mm. And so when we're listening to this, we're, we're hearing Jesus saying, okay, that's what you've heard, but this is what you need to know. So that's what we're, we're looking at tonight, into tonight's material. We do have plenty to cover, I will say that. And so I'm not going to cover everything. That's why you've got extra notes and, uh, and an extra podcast. I did a bonus podcast this week. And the reason I did that is because we're not covering, in this teaching series, verses 17 to 21 of Matthew 5. We, you, you'll notice we've jumped the fulfillment of the law section there. So I've done a 20-odd, 25-minute or so podcast on that. There's some notes online. Um, but I will say a couple of things about it so that we connect what we're about to do tonight with what Jesus has just uh, said here in Matthew 5, 17 to 20. This is the section where he says, I haven't come to abolish the law. I've not come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. Not, a, not, a, not until heaven and earth disappear, the smallest letter, the smallest, least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear until all this is accomplished. Anyone who sets aside one of these commands, teaches others accordingly, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Who, who practices, teaches, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And, and this interesting verse, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that sounds like a pretty tall order, isn't it? I mean, you know, they were scrupulous, weren't they, in keeping the law and obeying all the different things. So what is he really saying here? Well, I'm not going to unpack it all now. That's why there's an extra podcast. But I will say this. The challenge with Pharisaism, I think, that Jesus is revealing here is that their concept of religion, their concept of a relationship with God was primarily external and formal rather than being something of the heart. 
They had a greater concern for the ceremonial than for the moral. They elevated man-made rules built on selected scriptures, which often contradicted direct biblical commands, like the Corban issue he, he raises elsewhere. They tended to be self-satisfied with their own righteousness, like the, uh, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, look at me, I'm doing well. And they ended up glorifying themselves by that behavior rather than God. And ultimately, as someone mentioned love, they neglected love, which is the heart of the law. Hypocrisy and love cannot coexist. I mean, just try it. Try being a loving person who's also a hypocrite. It just doesn't work. And so this hypocrisy and formalism are so far removed from love, that's one of the reasons that Jesus was so upset with them, especially because they set themselves up as being the example to follow. So that's what we've got to watch out for. That's part of what he's dealing with here. He says, I've come to fulfill the law. In other words, you have this idea of what righteousness is, but you've got the wrong idea of righteousness. So when he says in verse 20, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, it could be said that he's holding up the model of righteousness that they have in mind and saying, you've got to have not only, not so much a better righteousness, but the right kind of righteousness. Their, your righteousness will surpass their righteousness because it will be the right righteousness instead of the wrong righteousness. You with me? It's not that they're on this level and you've got to be on this level. It's that they're over here in the completely the wrong place and you need to be over here having a, a, a proper kind of righteousness that he talks about in the Beatitudes. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be filled, right? So it, I think it's more to do uh, with that. As someone said this about it, kind of putting words into Jesus' mouth. Do not suppose that I came to undermine the authority of the Old Testament scriptures, and in particular the law of Moses. I did not come to set them aside, but to bring into reality that to which they pointed. That to which they pointed. They pointed forward. And uh, from a commentary by uh, Artie France, Jesus is not talking about beating the scribes and Pharisees at their own game, but about a different level or concept of righteousness altogether. And to me that makes sense of this calling to be more righteous than the Pharisees because it's a different kind of righteousness, the correct one. Um, so I think that's probably what we need to say. Oh yeah, um, think about Jesus and his righteousness. Was he righteous? Yes. Yeah. Did the Pharisees think he was righteous? No. No. Why? He hung out with the wrong people. Mm. He didn't follow all the He didn't follow all customs. the laws. Not all the traditions at yeah. least anyway. He always seemed to say the wrong thing. Yeah. So it's an interesting thought for us that perhaps our lifestyle should be characterized as being different from what most people consider to be traditionally accurate about Christianity, yeah. or at least in some areas. Exactly. Not necessarily every area, and not necessarily, not, not to make a point, like look at me, I'm doing it differently. But perhaps when we fit in with the rest of the Christian world a little too much, maybe we are missing the point of the heart of yeah. Christendom and being a disciple. That's something for us to, to think about. Because Jesus' wrong behavior was precisely the right behavior that was actually righteous, even though they said it wasn't. Yeah. So that's something for us to think about. Of course, that will get you in trouble if you do that. <laughs> right? That's when we get persecuted and Jesus said, Bless, you're blessed when you're persecuted. Yeah. So smile when you're opposed, right? You have to smile. Okay. So let's move on into our main passage tonight. Uh, you have heard, but I say. What is Jesus doing? He's adding a second story to the building. He's not so much abolishing the law as he's building on top. It's not, an it's not a 
completely accurate metaphor, but it, it might do, all right? He's adding a second story. Some of us might have done that with, with our houses. Now, verse 21. Verse 21 and the next section in Matthew 5, I think is kind of about what happens when we live out Matthew 5, verse 9. The Beatitude, which says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. What does it, I think the Sermon on the Mount in many ways unpacks what it means to live the Beatitudes. And I'd say this section largely shows us what it looks like when we live out being a peacemaker. So let's talk about the next few verses here. When he says, you've heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Let's stop there for a moment. We're going to look at the rest of these. Jesus talks about murder and says, okay, you know murder's not right. In this case, uh, murder rather than killing as such, but we'll have to deal with that as a doctrinal issue another time. But anyway, murder. And he's uh, obviously quoting some parts of the Old Testament here. But Jesus is basically saying contempt is as bad as murder. I mean, he uses the word raka there, which in the Hebrew means uh, you fool or something like that. You blockhead, you airhead, uh, that kind of idea. Um, but he's, he's saying it's, a, it's an attitude of contempt that's problematic. Think about the Beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Can you be merciful and contemptuous at the same time? I don't think so. Can you be, can you be contemptuous and a peacemaker at the same time? I, I, I don't think so, right? So he's showing us situations in which peacemaking would be compromised. When we've got a bad, a bad uh, approach to somebody which is contemptuous. Now, he says here, uh, with a brother or sister, so uh, it's not just somebody out there in the world that you feel contemptuous about, that may well fit that person too, but it's also about us together in this congregation, in your family group, in your location, just our, our friendships here. Being contemptuous of other people is, in his mind, just as bad. But the thing is, murder starts long before the action has been committed, and we never know where contempt may lead to. I mean, prayerfully, it wouldn't ever lead to physical killing, but it can lead to many other issues of bitterness and division and hurt and, 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 and words that we once have said cannot be taken back and can hurt. It's not just a matter of action, it's an aspect of character. Jesus does not treat us with contempt because of his heart, not just because he knows he shouldn't. And so we're meant to be people with the kind of heart that would see contempt for other people as a, a, if we feel that coming upon us, that it's a red flag. That no, this is not something I want. I want to be different to that. The problem lies in the murderer's view of his victim. He says here that uh, in the uh, where are we? we in the oh the fire of hell. Yes, if anyone says <clears throat> you fool, you'll be in danger of the fire of hell. And that's Gehenna. Um, this is a valley in Jerusalem, and it's where Molech's sacrifices were made. Do you remember Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites, mm -hmm. uh, offered child sacrifice in this valley? And then once, once it had become a, uh, the city of David, the city of Jerusalem, um, it, it was used as a rubbish dump. And so they'd throw all their rubbish in there and burn it. And so the fire in that valley never went out. So this is the image here of the, fire, the fires of hell that never go out. It's the fire of a rubbish dump that's continually burning. And if you were a Jewish person, you were familiar with that image. 
that fire never stopped. And he's saying it's like, well, you might as well throw yourself in that rubbish dump and be burned alive. He's not making so much a theological point about hell here. He's saying, is that what you want? You, you want to get thrown in there? I don't think you do. But that's the danger here is that we, we would deserve that if we didn't have the heart of God. He goes on to talk about offering of gifts. In verse 23, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Okay, so we're now moving on to um, this idea of the gift. Jesus is teaching this in the Galilee area. Jerusalem is about 80 miles away. So what he's saying to the group in front of him is, you're going to Jerusalem with an animal, you're taking it there for sacrifice, one of the special festivals, you get to Jerusalem, which is going to take you anything from one to two weeks. So you've traveled for one to two weeks with your animal, you've arrived at Jerusalem, you remember, oh, I've got something against my brother back in Galilee. Bother. I can't offer my gift. I, and you have to find somebody to look after your animal while you travel all the way back to Galilee, another week or two, reconcile with your brother, travel back to Jerusalem, another week or two, hopefully your animal's still alive, and then go to the temple and offer your offering. I mean, this is really intense. You know, sometimes we talk about this like, you know, we shouldn't perhaps take communion if we've got something against our brother, we should reconcile that, or maybe not even come to church to sort of sort that out. Well, well maybe yes. But, but this is so much more intense than that. This is, this is like drop everything. I mean, maybe don't eat. Don't go to a church service. It's not quite the same. This is like a big, big deal. It also, I don't think it's about the small things. Like a funny feeling. It's about the big stuff. But it is important. What he's saying here is respond with urgency and respond whatever the cost. You know, I've, maybe you have. I've been in relationships sometimes that have been difficult and we've, we've had to sit and talk for hours. Hours and hours and hours. All day sometimes. And sometimes all day and then all day and again another day. And, or maybe you know, once a week, an evening. Or it, perhaps it goes on for a week or two or three or a month or... And uh, these things are exhausting <laughs> and give me a migraine. Um, but you know, isn't it worth it, given, given how much Jesus values peace and that we are to be peacemakers? And then when you work through something like that, you've often created a bond that the same situation will not break second time around. Because yeah. you've come to a deeper understanding of each other and a deeper love. And often that deeper love in our fellowships only comes through things like that. Yeah. You know, if we're always floating around on the surface of our relationships and we never get, get into the stuff that's difficult, then we're going to feel shallow. Yeah. And that's not a healthy place to be. But usually the way to depth is through challenge, is through misunderstanding, is through causing each other pain. But hey, Jesus says the cost is worth it. And then the next uh, parable... He says, settle matters quickly with your adversary, verse 25, who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge. The judge may hand you over to the officer. You'll be thrown into prison. You won't get out until you've paid the last penny. So, um, This is about responding to an opponent who comes at you, but with urgency. And what Jesus says is, do you want the kingdom or do you want prison? You can make a choice, but you need to sort it out while you can, while you have time. 
All right, time's running on. Let's talk about what happens. That's what happens when we live to be a peacemaker, right? They're all about relationships. Some, pretty much all of these are, but that's a section really about relationships. What about the next few? Um, adultery, divorce, oaths, and vows. Let's talk about these. I think this is what happens when we live Matthew 5, verse 6. Another one of the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, I want to remind us of the definition of righteousness that I like and I think fits with what I think Jesus intended, which is not about a standard of morality. Uh, living for righteousness' sake is about doing right by God and doing right by other people. The way we treat God, the way we treat people is really what's going on here. Mm. That's the kind of righteousness. And so, I think he's fit with that. So, lust and adultery to begin with. Um, <laughs> he says... Um, don't commit adultery, fine, but uh, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. And so you best off pluck out your right eye, cut off your right hand. It's better for that to happen than to go into hell. Let's think about this in just for a minute. So with lust, um, the issue here is not noticing somebody and even necessarily having some kind of sexual attraction. It's not so much about that. It's more about what we do when we sense that, when that happens to us. It's been said, you can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop it from making a nest in your hair. <laughs> so thoughts occur to us, right? They go through our minds. We're not in control of, of what comes into our minds a lot of the time, but you can decide what to do with that thought once it arrives. So we don't want to be building nests, <laughs> um, allowing birds to build nests in our hair. We don't want to let those lustful feelings and thoughts, uh, when they, once they just triggered something there, we don't want to entertain them. Right? That's what he's talking about here. This is not a prohibition of a normal attraction which exists between men and women, but of a deep-seated lust which consumes and devours, someone said. In imagination, it attacks and rapes, which mentally contemplates and commits adultery. He says, well, you better throw, uh, you gouge your eye out and throw your hand away once you've cut it off. And yet, it's obviously not a literal meaning there, because a blind person is, as he can commit lust as much as a, a seeing person, right? So it's not about that. It's just about being radically serious about the temptations that come our way. They will come, but what we do with them, well, that is up to us. And there is a need for radicality if we're going to uh, really have the heart of Jesus. Again, it comes from the heart. This is why our relationship with Jesus is so important. This is why prayer is so important. It's why reading God's word is so important. So that the strength comes from God, because we do not have it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. One of the Beatitudes, right? which is saying, God, I need you. I cannot do this without you. Now, with you, I can do all things. It's amazing. As Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but without him. And it can't be just conceptual. It has to be that it's part of our, our, our DNA, in a sense, our spiritual DNA, that we, because we pray, because we read the word, because we're honest with one another about our lives, then God is, God is able to work. So divorce. Now, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to deal with the doctrines of divorce here because that's another three or four classes on its own. What I would say to you is you need to compa uh, compare, compare and add together this teaching with, say, Matthew 19, where he also talks about divorce. So put it all together to get a good view of what Jesus would be saying about divorce. But basically what I, I think we need to get out of it from the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus says here, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate. But I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You say, well, look, Moses permitted divorce, okay, but that's because 
But that's because of hardness of heart. I mean, God hates divorce. Malachi, Malachi 3, Malachi. Lost my reference here. It's on the, on the handout somewhere. Malachi 2. Malachi 2. Okay, thank you. God hates divorce. So if, if Moses permitted it, it's only because it's an exceptional situation. The hardness of heart. The point that Jesus is getting at, I think, is that they, the people of his day, had lost the original emphasis of the Deuteronomy passage that he's quoting, which is one of remarriage to one's previously divorced wife. So the passage being used, quoted here in Deuteronomy, is not actually about all cases of adultery. It's about somebody who's divorced his wife, she marries somebody else, and then she comes back to her first husband, and they get remarried. And he's, that's the context of the teaching of Deuteronomy. So I'm just saying that, not because I want to unpack all that, but just to say, when we read something as straightforward as this, we need to understand there's a bit more behind it, before we can say there are red lines about what is allowed and not allowed regarding divorce in the kingdom. I just want to say that you can't just use a few verses like this to say this is all there is to say about it. That's all I can really say in tonight's yep. space. Okay? Again, the heart is really the issue. Jesus wants to rescue the true teaching about uh, the covenant of marriage and, and love and teach the disciples the heart of the issue because basically divorce is such a huge thing. Um, Carson's commentary. Let's talk about vows. Yes, vows and oaths. You've heard it said to the people, do not break your oath. But I tell you, don't swear any oaths, not by the earth, Jerusalem, the city. Do not swear by your head. You can't even make one hair white or black. And he's not, I know, I know there's hair dyeing, but that's obviously not, not what he's talking about here. Just let your yes be yes. Carson says, um, this, was, um, this was one of the things that happened at the time of Jesus. Um, I'm on the wrong slide. Oh, I missed that slide. Oh, that's a shame. Oh, we might come back to it if we have time. Okay. No, we need to go to it. Let's do that just briefly. I love this. I love this quote from Christostom, an early Christian writer. He that is meek and a peacemaker and poor in spirit and merciful, how shall he cast out his wife? He that is used to reconcile others, how shall he be at variance with her who is his own? Very quaint language. <laughs> but basically he's saying, if you really live the Beatitudes from the heart, how could you divorce your wife? What are you thinking? I mean, how could you treat her like that? If you are a peacemaker, if you are poor of spirit, if you're merciful, and if, I mean, so this is, you know, it's, it's the fundamentals of the Beatitudes that make all of this become meaningful and possible, we could say. All right, so a rabbi of the days of Jesus said, if you swear by Jerusalem, you're not bound by your vow. But if you swear toward Jerusalem, then you are bound by your vow. <laughs> So they were finding ways to make their vows breakable and non-breakable. And it's just anathema to Jesus, anathema to the people of truth. It, it, our yes must be yes, and our no must be no. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, God makes oaths, and it's referenced in the New Testament. And the Apostle Paul actually makes oaths. It's not, that's not the point. <laughs> and that's a whole other class, but there's some references in your handout for you to look at. But it's about being a person of integrity. Yeah. And as Christians... We need to be. James 5.12. Above all my brothers and sisters do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise you'll be condemned. We are people of the truth. Not a truth, the truth. And that's why we must be people of, in of integrity. All right, last point. Last main point. The next section. Eye for an eye and loving your enemies. This is what happens, I think, when we live Matthew 5, verse 5, which is blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. What happens when we live it? 
Well, we don't seek revenge and we don't resist those we could help. We're generous with what we have and we love the most difficult people to love. The people we don't want to. The people we're sure don't deserve it. This is radically different. This is the kingdom of heaven. An eye for an eye. Um, if you... Uh, where am I? If you want to... Deserve, oh, you, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. If you're slapped on the cheek. So this is... This is... If this is your right cheek, then the kind of slap we're talking about is a backhanded slap, which was the worst insult of that culture. Do you remember some journalist threw a shoe at George Bush, not long after the Iraq war, right? And to you, most of us here, it's like, I mean, why, why throw a shoe? I mean, but in that culture, it's about the most disrespectful thing you can do. So this is, this is not like someone told you off or someone swore at you. This is like someone completely trying to tear you down, destroy your reputation, be as horrible to you as possible. And he says, don't resist that person. Now, this is interesting. We don't have time to unpack it exactly. Jesus did resist the Pharisees. And he did resist the people who tried to make him king. Okay, so Jesus showed resistance at some points, but then he didn't resist the people who crucified him. So there's also some wisdom issues here as to when it's right to resist and when it's not right to resist. But I think what he's getting at is he's saying, don't take it personally. And don't seek revenge and to put it right because you're in the right and they're in the wrong. He says, that's not the spirit of Christ. Rather be wronged for the sake of Christ than risk the, uh, the bitterness that builds once we start to seek revenge. It sells films, lots of Hollywood films, right? I mean, basically that's about 90% of, of those films. Uh, and we quite like them because it taps into something very primal and real. You know, as it does. As well as some good things to do with justice. It's not all bad, but it's just we've got to watch ourselves that we don't um, take things personally that we can take to God to help us to deal with the fact that we're feeling it so personally. That's, again, our prayer life is so important. Um, resistance. Uh, go, if someone forces you to go one mile, go two. That's the Roman soldier who could command a civilian to help him with his whatever he was carrying. And uh, so Jesus says, yeah, go with him. Uh, go two. What's, what does that mean? Like, once I've gone two... That's it, buddy. I'm not going any further. No, that's not the point. I think what he's saying is, do, do this kind of thing cheerfully. You want one? You can have two. It's a generous spirit serving other people in ways that are inconvenient to us. It's that generous spirit. Uh, rather than what's in it for me, it's what's in it for Christ in this situation if I serve in this way. Um, give to one who asks you, okay, love your enemies, let's finish with that. Love your enemies. You've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. That's not really quite what the Old Testament says in, in total. Um, but he says, no, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Love even an enemy. A quick cautionary note, this doesn't mean accommodating an abuser. Love your enemy is not the same as let anybody do to you what they want to do to you. Yeah. That's not that, this teaching. So it doesn't mean that, but it does tell us that God's enemies are valuable to him. Think about that for a minute. Your enemies, shall we say, are as valuable to God as you are. The people we find most difficult are as loved by God as you or I or anybody else. And I think that's one of the challenges. When I, I have an enemy, and occasionally I have an enemy, 
someone opposing me or just making my life difficult, I find it very difficult to believe that God loves them as much as he loves me. But that's the truth, isn't it? While we were still his enemies, he sent Christ to die for us, Romans chapter 5. And so we need to bear that in mind. He finishes off this whole section with the rather challenging verse, <laughs> shall we say. Oh, and by the way, on top of all this, be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> be perfect yeah you know no big deal be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect he is holy right so be holy as God is uh, is holy the word means complete it means mature it's used elsewhere in the New Testament to mean mature so he's not talking about perfection but he's talking about what we're aiming at what we're aiming at what are we truly aiming at in life we're at our spiritually healthiest when our desire is to be as much like Jesus as possible. It's not so much where we are right now. It's where we wish to be. So if wherever I am, I'm a mature Christian, a relatively mature Christian, or not a relatively mature Christian, a younger Christian, or an older Christian, a Christian who's been through an awful lot of struggle, and I've sinned a lot, or whatever, it's not so much about where we are now. It's about where we want to be. And if we want to be as much like Jesus as we can, then this stuff begins to become who we are. It begins, begins to be what, how we live, but it, it's more it be, we begin to become this. The enfleshment of the Beatitudes, the Christ-like spirit, which makes a difference in the world, bringing the saltiness of the kingdom, bringing the bright light of the good news to the rest of the world. Yeah. Be perfect, be complete, be mature, aim at Christ. Don't aim at just being more religious or more faith, more knowledgeable or more skilled or, or just to get, get by and, and hang on in there in the church for a few more decades. It's, 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 it's something deeper in the heart. It's about a, a, a desire and an aim for Christ's likeness. So well. Uh, so we haven't really covered very much tonight. Um, but what I would encourage us to do is to use the materials for your own personal Bible study and to make sure that you think about, we all think about something practical from it. So maybe you could ask yourself, of all the things we looked at tonight, what's one thing I could apply even tomorrow? Whatever you're doing on Saturday. What part of what we've looked at, what part of, of um, contempt and not having contempt for people, or what part of reconciling with people, what part of, of making sure that we deal with those who are opposing us, what part of lust, what part of... Um, marriage issues maybe, what part of being a person of integrity, what part of not resisting those uh, who are, are hurting us in the sense of no retaliation and no seeking of revenge, uh, what part of being generous and joyfully generous with our time and energy and money, serving others, what part of, what part of loving our enemy, identifying, recognising and praying for and loving our enemy could we take part in perhaps tomorrow? I, I think those are the things for us to think about. I'm pretty sure that out of all those, there's probably at least one for each of us to think about, grow in, and become more mature in as we strive to be perfect as the Father is perfect. Amen. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you.